Here's my fun fact. You know Joaquin Phoenix? Yes. Um, so he has some relatives that are part of the Phoenix family. Uh, but his name was not always Phoenix. Originally, when he was born, his last name was Bottom. Uh, right. They changed it to Phoenix after they moved back from Venezuela. That's a whole story I won't get into. Mm. But what's interesting about this is that he has an older brother who was named River Phoenix. So I just want to know why his parents thought it was okay to name him River Bottom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Hello. <laughs> How's that? It's beautiful. It's a great podcasting voice. Keep going. Mm, thank you. Hello and welcome to Screen Walkers, a brother-sister podcast where we, the walkers, tell you what's on our screens. My name is Josh. And I'm Becca. Good job. That was very good. I like that. Uh, Josh, uh, we are doing the second part of our favorite films tournament bracket today. Yep. I need to find a smaller name for that. I don't think I'm going to be able to. Um, and we're doing my first half of the bracket today, which is very exciting. Yay. Yay. Uh, I want you to know in the time that we made this, between in between the time that we made this and now, um, my side, my actual watching of this side of the list has improved a decent amount. Oh, that's good. Okay, what did you watch? Uh, Pride and Prejudice 05 and Emma 2020. Um, I'm kind of surprised that you hadn't seen Pride and Prejudice 05 already. Because I totally thought you had, for some reason. The very first time that I saw Pride and Prejudice was uh, Pride and Prejudice the Musical. I do remember that, yeah. How was that compared to the 05? Have you ever seen that? I think it's fantastic. I have not seen the musical version, no. It's so funny. You should definitely... <laughs> Pride and Prejudice, a new mu- musical is what it's called. One of the funniest parts is when I believe it's when um, Jane is sick at Netherfield. Um, and then Lizzie goes and like has a little bit of like it's kind of the first witty battle outside of the dance with Mr. Darcy. And there's this moment where like the light shines on Mr. Darcy and he. Uh, he cheats out to the crowd. Oh yeah, yeah. So he like you know it's it's telling his mental perspective, and he says he's like, oh no, I like her. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's so good. <laughs> it's really funny. I love that. That's kind of the fun thing about musical theater is that you get moments to cheat out like that. Whereas yes. like in other versions of the Pride and Prejudice story, like even in the two thousand five one that moment is always so, so subtle and it really, really depends on the actor. But when in musical theater, you can just cheat out and be like, Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. It's, it was, it was good. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it was like more well done than any other version, but it was, I think it's something that you can, you can watch and appreciate. That's good. Hmm. Okay. Well, as long as we're talking about pride and prejudice, it is the first film on our list. So we might as well keep going. 
the Pride and Prejudice I have listed here is uh, Pride and Prejudice 2005, directed by Joe Wright, uh, starring Kira Knightley, Matthew McFadden, Brenda Blethyn, Donald Sutherland, Tom Hollander, Rosamund Pike, Jenna Malone, and Judy Dench as the illustrious uh, owner of Rosings Park, whose name I've just forgotten. <laughs> it's flooded my mind. <laughs> it's there. Uh, Lady Catherine. Lady Catherine de Bourgh. That's the one. Lady Catherine de Bourgh. I'm going to be eaten alive by the Austin stands. They're also going to eat me alive for choosing this instead of like, I don't know, their favorite version of Pride and Prejudice. Which yeah. It's been the big debate between Pride and Prejudice versions has always been 1995 to 2005. Like as long as I've been involved mm -hmm. in like being i guess just being aware of what austin is it's always oh 1995 is so much more accurate than 2005 like it doesn't mm -hmm. like it's just i have a lot of conflicting feelings about this because i do understand because this was like kind of the same era that we were getting the harry potter movies right and like people were getting upset that Harry's eye color didn't match because Daniel Radcliffe couldn't wear the freaking green contacts and mm -hmm. like they didn't want to digitally edit every single frame to make him have stupid green eyes. <laughs> when like that kind of thing doesn't really matter. I do kind of get it in terms of Pride and Prejudice because in this, the I should tell the people what my bracket looks like. The first four films are all period drama films, which is just you dress the actors in pretty costumes and you send them on their way. Like it's one of my favorite genres of film, which is why I have four of them on here. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the big important things in period drama films is that your costuming has to be good. Otherwise, people are going to take apart from it. Because, like, otherwise you're just making a film, right? Like, that's yeah. you need to be kind of historically accurate, especially in your clothing. Uh, because in these kinds of, when you say costume drama, it's the costume. It's half yeah. of the concept. Like, you need to mm -hmm. do it properly. Um, Little Women, the Greta Gerwig version, got a lot of flack for this because, like, they had one scene, I think, where one of the girls, it was probably Emma Watson's character, I think she played Joe, uh, was wearing, like, Ugg boots in the snow. And they were like, those are Ugg boots, man. Like, those aren't historically <laughs> accurate. And, like, none of them were wearing their hair up properly. And, like... Like, it, it can still be a good movie. And I think that Pride and Prejudice does this really, really well. Pride and Prejudice, I don't know a whole lot about Regency. Like, despite being a Jane Austen stan pretty regularly, I don't know everything there is to know about Regency dress. So I'm not going to yes. go off of that. I'm going to go off of what this film likes to go off of, which is vibes. This film does vibes so well. It's just, <laughs> I think this is some, this is one of Joe Wright's really big strengths as the director is just pure emotion. He knows exactly what he wants and he knows exactly how to manipulate the camera and the lighting to get that emotion from you. And he does yeah. that so well in this film. Um, so uh, for those who somehow haven't seen any version of Pride and Prejudice, uh, here's the skinny. Pride and Prejudice is a story about uh, Elizabeth Bennett, who's... Uh, comes from a family of five daughters, all girls, and all their mother wants is for them to get married and have good marriages. And so, yeah, it's about girls in pretty dresses dancing and verbally sparring with grumpy men and then getting married. It's great. I love it. <laughs> <coughs> so uh, Elizabeth Bennett pretty quickly butts heads with uh, Mr. Darcy, Mr. Fitzwilliam Darcy. I love that name. <laughs> 
It's so landed gentry. The entire film is about their relationship, the way that um, Darcy initially comes off to Elizabeth Bennet as like this very cold and haughty individual, and the way that she comes off to him is kind of this, you know, country bumpkin, not Lizzie's older sister Jane, uh, falls in love with uh, Darcy's friend, Mr. Bingley. Bingley. And they go over to his house, and uh, but their mother machines circumstances into which uh, Jane gets sick and has to stay at Netherfield for an extended period of time. And during that time, Elizabeth goes to help her sister and Darcy gets to kind of see that, oh, she's kind of being put upon by her family. Like, she's really like this very intelligent, you know, gifted young woman who's, you know, willing to, like, spar with him and stuff. And he kind of starts falling for her. But she doesn't fall in love with him yet because she still sees him as this, like, kind of, you know, pompous prick. And she's not really able to overlook her differences because I think Matthew McFadden, the way it's played in this film specifically is that Darcy is a little bit socially awkward and socially anxious. And he doesn't really mm -hmm. know how to communicate his feelings very well to people that he doesn't know. Um, that's pretty, I would say, like, canon, I guess, to, like, that's a line from the book. It's a line that's been played up. But Matthew McFadden, I think, plays it really, really well here with... The 1995 Pride and Prejudice, where Darcy's played by Colin Firth, you kind of have this, like, you kind of see it from Lizzie's perspective. It's framed from Lizzie's perspective a little bit more. Yeah, where, where he's, like, he's just like, mighty. Yeah, he's just stone-faced the entire time. Yeah. Very rude and very, like, elitist is how it comes off. Uh, that is, I think that's a symptom of the original book being entirely from Lizzie's perspective. And I'm just mm -hmm. reading, like, the top of the Wikipedia page for this here. Uh, but the screenwriter, uh, Deborah Mogok, I guess, I'm so sorry, I probably mispronounced that. Uh, it says that she initially attempted to make her script as faithful to the novel as possible, but it was Joe Wright that encouraged kind of branching out in perspectives. So you get to see a little bit from Darcy's perspective in this film, and it adds so much color and warmth and depth to his performance. And I think, <laughs> and, like, just to the whole film in general. And, like, the, I don't know, the music is gorgeous, and you get to watch these two people, like, learn to overcome their initial impressions of each other, and, like, actually really fall in love, and it's really cute. <laughs> I don't know, I really like it. What, what did you think of this film? I thought it was really cute. I think most of my opinion, well, you know, I have, obviously I have opinions on it, but uh, part of that is because of the company that I watch it in, right? But I think it was really enjoyable. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say about it that you haven't already said. The best compliment that I can give this movie is that it's Pride and Prejudice. You know? Exactly, it, yeah. <laughs> it feels very much like the book. It's kind of the... There's a reason why people debate between this version and the 90s version, right? It's because they're both Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, they're good representations. Like, if... The, this film had been bad, it would be a debate between the 1995 miniseries and, like, whatever the last series the BBC <laughs> made was before the 1995 one, the, like, the 80s or the 70s or the 60s or something. Yeah. But, yeah, like, exactly. This film is able to take the story in the novel and adapt it in such a way that it is very recognizable and it's able to distill, I think, those themes down very, very well. It might be missing some of the nuance but I don't think it's missing most of the nuance. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like it might be missing little bits and pieces, but it's been shaved into a shape that is still recognizably Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. It also gave me and Kendall one of our favorite sayings. 
most excellent boiled potatoes. <laughs> it's so good. It's so funny. So we've spent a, a, quite a bit of time talking about Pride and Prejudice 05. So can you explain to me why you chose Emma 2020 to combat, to put up against Pride and Prejudice 05? Sure. Uh, there are a couple different reasons. One is that Emma is another adaptation of another Jane Austen work. Uh, they do cover pretty... They have very similar um, setting. Well, like, of course, they have similar... It's the same setting, basically. Yeah. Um, but the way that Jane Austen covers different themes in this while still writing compel- another compelling romance, I think, was really good. So uh, while I gather my thoughts, I'll just read the things. Uh, Emma is a 2020 romantic period comedy film directed by Autumn DeWilde from a screenplay by Eleanor Canton, uh, based on Jane Austen's 1815 novel of the same name, of course. Uh, stars Anya Taylor-Joy, Johnny Flynn, Josh O'Connor, Callum Turner, Mia Goth, Miranda Hart, and Bill Nye as uh, Mr. Woodhouse. Who I think he's very funny as Mr. Woodhouse. He was so good. He was so funny. I love Mr. Woodhouse. He's Mr. Woodhouse is so good. Um, I think the first reason that I chose this one specifically to combat Pride and Prejudice 05 is that it follows Pride and Prejudice's example in that it's gorgeous. <laughs> like it's just pure it is vibes. Very pretty. It's so pretty. Oh my gosh. And I think in terms of pure filmmaking, the Emma 2020 takes Pride and Prejudice completely out of the water like as much as i love pride and prejudice 05 and as much as joe wright has done for the costume film industry i think emma 2020 just kicks it up an extra notch and i think it's almost purely because of the color like there's so many bright and colors in it and it's just beautiful and like the wallpapers and the dresses are just so the the thing that you have to understand with emma is that emma has never had a single thing go wrong in her life ever at the beginning of the film she has just come off of like the beautiful high of setting up this perfect couple like this like her friends and she is on top of the world and she wants to do that again and so she takes this other young girl uh and starts trying to get her to match her up essentially too she considers herself a matchmaker yeah um, but in the process she like as she's trying to set Harriet it up with this preacher she is actively not seeing the harm that she's doing to harriet and at first it is like it's kind of hard to tell at first if it's willful or not eventually you realize that it's not really but that she does genuinely care for harriet but that she believes that she knows what's best for harriet but this turns out to be not true at all actually and this and when the preacher goes off and gets married to somebody else who is richer than harriet kind of kickstarts this change in Emma where she starts looking outside of herself, not in like the conceited way that she was doing before. She starts like actually seeing people for who they are and like listening to them actually for once in her life. And it's transformative and it's beautiful. Um and like I think that like the way that Jane Austen handles the concepts of uh change and self-growth and are just really interesting in the ways that it's compared and contrasted in Pride and Prejudice versus Emma. So I think there are a few things that make this movie and make this story, right? Because really the heart of it is this story by Jane Austen. And when I started watching this movie, I was like, okay, this is a very beautiful period piece. And then there were a few things that made me like 
go, okay, this is the kind of story that everyone needs to hear. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So we have, we have um, first off her relationship with, I'm going to find it here. Is it Mr. Um, Knightley? No, with Miss Bates. Oh, with Miss Bates. Emma yes, and Miss Bates, I think, is one of the the crucial dynamics of this movie. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I did the story right. Um, that whole thing. Well, so okay. Sorry. First off, we have her and um, her setting up her best friend with Mr. Elton. Yes. And that twisting the narrative right because we're we're on emma's side right we like emma mm-hmm. we're supposed to like emma yeah she's likable yeah, right she's likable right she's she's witty and fun she's this georgian era woman that is very strong and we're like oh yeah she's great mm-hmm. right so we like her and so then the twist happens when mr elton isn't who we think he is right yeah and where he, he goes off here, and marries it's, jane it's, for her money yeah yeah um then the second thing that happens is her with Miss Bates. Mm-hmm. Um where she insults Miss Bates and everyone is so awkward about it. I love it. It's no, it's so good. Like she just insults Miss Bates and everybody's like, Why did you do that? Yeah, Miss Bates why, is why great. Was, like <laughs> why was that your right? And that's you know, she doesn't like Miss Bates because Miss ba- because of who Miss Bates is is, right? But Miss Bates is so loving and nice that she doesn't like blame Emma for the wrong. Yeah, like she totally forgives Emma like immediately, like as soon as <laughs> it's kind of like uh like a chiasmus, right? Where that's kind of the the turning point of the movie right there is right there. Yeah. Exactly. And so, so we on the on the one half on coming into it. We have she insults Miss Bates and everyone's on discomfort. Everyone's like, that was not okay. And then Mr. Knightley and the badly done Emma scene. That was so good. I was like, I, everyone needs to watch this movie so that everyone can understand how to react when they're in the wrong, right? And how to understand that they're not right all the time. I think that's part of all this. I, just Jane Austen in, in general. I've never read a book by her, but everything that I've seen from her work is all about characters understanding why they are making mistakes and changing themselves. The one, the other thing that I do love about Emma too, is that when Jane Austen was writing her, she said, I have created a protagonist that no one but myself will like much. And that's so wrong (laughs) yes but like it's it's wrong because she's able to do the switcheroo right she's able to pull off emma becoming this fully realized person you know being kinder to people and taking their opinions into consideration more and all of these things and it's just it's beautifully done and it's yeah masterpiece jane austen you died too soon (laughs) did you want her to live forever (laughs) No, but like she died at 42. She could have written that's, so many more books. That's true. <laughs> so uh, taking these two into account, which one do you think wins? It's uh, always the hard question. <laughs> um, I think right now I'm leaning towards Emma 2020. Okay. Just because of what I mentioned earlier with the cinematography. 
Mm-hmm. And like obviously it is building on the shoulders of the giant that is the Pride and Prejudice 2005. Yes. That being said, it is very well done and I do think that it is like just pound for pound better than Pride and Prejudice 2005. Mm-hmm. I might get crucified for that. But like <laughs> <laughs> it's so well done. Okay, uh, our next one is another costume drama. This one is a much different mashup, uh, just because there were two other costume dramas that I love, but I didn't really have other pairs for. Uh, So the first is uh, 1993's Much Ado About Nothing and uh, 2011 Jane Eyre. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Much Ado About Nothing, I guess I'll just introduce straight off. Uh, Much Ado About Nothing, 1993 film, uh, based off of the William Shakespeare play of the same name. Uh, written and directed by Kenneth Branagh, who also plays uh, Benedict, who is one of my favorite romantic male leads in any anything, basically, ever. Uh, starring Kenneth Branagh, Michael Keaton... I forgot Michael Keaton was in this. Well, wow. <laughs> Robert Sean Leonard, Keanu Reeves, Emma Thompson, Denzel Washington, and Kate Beckinsale. Uh, much Ado About... It's so... It's just this... It's the same kind of thing as Pride and Prejudice. It's like got the two warring leads. And um, have you seen any version of this ever? Um, yes, I've seen this version of Much Ado About Nothing. Okay. That's good. Okay, yeah. Yes. Can I tell you what I think about this movie? Yes, please tell me what you think about this movie. I love this movie. It's so good. <laughs> it's so ridiculous and fantastic. It's one of like, it's one of the adaptations of a Shakespeare work that I consider to be, like, one of the best. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of Kenneth Branagh adaptations, this might be his best work that he's ever done. I will agree with you there. I like I like his Hamlet and I like his uh, what's the one King Henry, but uh, this one is the best one out of all of them. It's so good, so funny and witty, and like the way that they just pour right because when you read Shakespeare in like your English class, you're like this is so dry and so boring. And you watch this version, and they are come alive. And like this has some like of the most romantic scenes. I am not a very romantic person in my actual real life. <laughs> when it comes to this film, I melt. <laughs> like the way the oh my gosh the the scene where Beatrice and Benedict have like their first confession scene, where they both think that the other is in love with them, and then they realize in that instant that they actually do love the other. And that just kind of collides in a beautiful way. <laughs> and Benedict's like splashing around in a fountain. It's so yes, good. it's so good. And uh, in the for which of all my bad parts did this didst thou first love me? That's so cute. And mm-hmm. but then like also the way that he supports her when she's getting angry at uh, Ron Robert, Robert Sean Leonard's character uh, Claudio. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for disgracing her cousin here, like very rightly, like being so pissed about. It. Yeah, he's like, no, you messed up, dude. Yeah, and like, not only his, like, she is able to, like, they establish the relationship in such a way that her expressing her anger to him does not put him off, uh, yes. and like, she's able to say things like, "If I were a man, I would eat eat his heart in the marketplace," uh, and yes. he doesn't go, "Okay, she's too crazy for me." Let's call this off. I'm done with this. Let's everybody just get out of here the way that Claudio is wanting to do. He's going to be like, no, 
you know what? I listened to her. I love her very much. I'm going to take this and I'm going to use this productively and I'm going to get my friend to listen to what he did wrong. Like Exactly. Just... <laughs> he, he takes her at her word, right? Yeah. And it's it's perfect and it's beautiful. And also, like, I forgot how much I love Michael Keaton as dog Barry in this. He's so funny. He delivers it <laughs> so good. <laughs> like, if... A, a bad dogberry can very, very easily ruin a much ado about nothing very quickly. Mm-hmm. Michael Keaton is such a good dogberry. <laughs> I, I really don't know what else to say about this film. Go watch this film. <laughs> um, so you, um, I have seen much ado about nothing. I yes. have never seen Jane Eyre 2011. Yes. More importantly, I've only ever seen like disassociated clips from Jane Eyre. <laughs> when you or mom was watching it mm-hmm. and it was not this version, it was an older version and it was yes. like when I was 10. Yeah. So that PBS is it's tech. I think it's technically BBC production. I watched it under the PBS masterpiece because that's nice. what does DVDs out here. Right. Um, that one uh, is my end all be all for adaptations of Jane Eyre. Cause like, I know a lot of people have a lot of mixed feelings about Jane Eyre, and I share those mixed feelings for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, I just, I still love it. Um, the Jane Eyre that Josh, I think, is talking about is the 2006 miniseries uh, starring Ruth Wilson uh, and Toby Stevens as uh, Rochester. Um, which I, is very good, and I really like that one. Uh, but this is films, so we have to stick to the film. So let me read off about that. Uh, Jane Eyre 2011, uh, directed by Kerry Fukunaga, starring Mia Wachowski and Michael Fassbender. So kind of the beauty of Jane Eyre has always been, for me, her... Like, just Jane Eyre as a character has always been her stalwart devotion to faith. I think that's very, very interesting. Because, like, you don't really have that. Like, you kind of get that a little bit in, like, Pride and Prejudice and Emma. There are religious characters in there. But none of those characters are the focus of the film. And I think that Charlotte Bronte really captures it in a very interesting way in that faith is what saves her as she's being, you know, used and abused in this horrendous school that she's growing up in. Uh, But it's like, that's not what she's attaching her faith to. She's, She's attaching her faith to her relationship with her friend, Helen, who dies pretty early in the film. It it's really is Jane's friendship with Helen that is established in the first half of the book. The, not the first half, like the first part of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, because Jane, you have to understand Jane is an orphan. She's never had a friend really before. She's been used and abused by her family, sent off to this horrible boarding school where they treat her terribly. Uh, but she manages to find this friend, Helen. And Helen really instills in her this sense of hope and faith that God is going to make everything okay in the end. And that is what Jane really clings to for the rest of it. And it it's just beautiful to watch her cling to those morals, even when everything she wants, wants to pull her away from those. Like this is um, after she finds out that Rochester is married, is still married and is keeping his uh, poor insane wife in the attic. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that poor insane wife in the attic a little bit later because there has been much made about her. But Jane uh, decides that she cannot be with him as long as his wife is still alive. Because obviously, like, that would be wrong. That would be living in sin. And she goes off and 
it, it's this is also very interesting because they take that uh, meeting of equals and rivals that Jane Austen does really well mm -hmm. in both Pride and Prejudice and Emma and all, all of the rest of her books. And they, I think sh uh, Charlotte Bronte does a really, really good version of it in Jane Eyre, where it is made extremely clear in multiple occasions that Jane and Rochester are two of a kind souls, basically. Like they are, <laughs> it's very similar to what her sister does in Wuthering Heights, where, you know, you see Kathy and Heathcliff are, you know, they're two of a kind, they're perfectly matched. Uh, there's a line in Jane Eyre where, or in Wuthering Heights, the line is, whatever souls are made of, his and mine are the same. And then in Jane Eyre, it's, um, I feel as though there is a string like tied to me that if it were to snap, like I would collapse it's something akin to that. Like it's like a puppet string holding him up and mm -hmm. like it's connecting them. And it's really cute. Um, I say cute. It's very dramatic. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I was, cause it's so funny to me that I love Jane Eyre so much. I hated Wuthering Heights the first time I read it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's because, Emily Bronte takes it in such a weird, not a weird direction. I like, I do understand where she's trying to come from in Wuthering Heights. Mm -hmm. Like she takes it in like in everything that Kathy and Heathcliff do in Wuthering Heights has an effect on other people and it hurts them. And that's, yeah. I think that's a really, really good social commentary on the way that these kinds of people are when they're in relationships, like these, you know, abusive people, being abusive together just makes it 10 times worse for everybody. Whereas in Jane Eyre, you don't really get that as much mm -hmm. because she's more focused on the romance. And I think that as a romance, Jane Eyre works better for me. But I think if I went back and read Wuthering Heights, not as a romance this time, but as like a critique of abuse, it might be a yeah. little bit better. Because um, it was sold to me as a romance at first, and that's why I hated Wuthering Heights. Mm -hmm. anyway, gothic thing. And I think that uh, Carrie Fukunaga does this really, really beautifully. In that he's again, it's the same kind of Pride and Prejudice sauce, just the you know the gorgeous cinematography and kind of the you know the beautiful swelling music over these parts where they're just like staring at each other. <laughs> and, uh, it's yeah, it's and it's really good. Um, and I liked it. Uh, in terms of moving films forward, though, I think I'm going to have to advance Much Ado just because. I like it that much more. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I will um, not argue with you there, mostly because yeah. I don't have the authority to. Yeah. So you have to do the heavy lifting for the next two. Yes. Because I have not seen The Decoy Bride. I um, was not aware that The Decoy, Decoy Bride was a movie that existed. <laughs> That's okay. Um, um, have you seen A Cinderella Story at all or no? So I have seen a Cinderella story. I'm pretty sure the last time I saw a Cinderella story, I was probably 13. Yeah, pretty young, right? It's been a long time. So you're going to have to just go through these movies That's and, okay. you know, <laughs> kind of be the heavy lifting on this part. Yes, that's all right. Um. So the reason that these two were next is because I had done my four favorite costume dramas, right? And I was faced with, okay, well, I still want to, like, like I kind of wanted to round out the first little bit of this bracket by saying, okay, I've done, you know, these historical romance comedies and dramas. I want to do 
a modern, like a couple modern romances just to kind of flush it out. Uh, so the two <laughs> I landed on were The Decoy Bride and A Cinderella Story, both of which are, I would describe probably as like guilty pleasure films. You know, it's the way we are with superhero movies. It's the, okay, exactly. let's go have some dumb fun. Um, mm -hmm. but, yeah, let me... Uh, the Decoy Bride is a 2011 British romantic comedy film written by comedian Sally Phillips and Neil Turca Jaworski, excuse me, uh, starring David Tennant, Alice Eve, and Kelly MacDonald. Uh, David Tennant, of course, of Doctor Who fame, Alice Eve. Uh, the first time I ever saw Alice Eve was she was the daughter of the general in Star Trek Into Darkness. I don't know if you yes, remember her. I remember yeah, her. And then Kelly MacDonald, you'll probably know as best as the voice of Merida in Brave. Okay. Uh, she also played uh, the Grey Lady Ghost in Harry Potter. I don't know if you remember that. Mm -hmm. She's in she's Nanny McPhee. She is. Yeah, she's the girl in Nanny McPhee. Yeah, she's her, the girl yeah. that like that he's actually that in love, love with. with that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So good. Okay. She's such a good actress. I love Kelly McDonald so much. Uh, so uh, Alice Eve plays uh, an American movie star who is constantly hounded by the press, and uh, the only thing that she wants in her entire life is to get married to her lovely novelist fiance played by David Tennant in just absolute privacy. So after their first wedding goes horribly awry because a paparazzo was hiding out in the church, they uh, fly off to Scotland to the most remote island in Scotland that you can possibly find, which is uh, the fictional island of Heg, which is in the Upper Hebrides. Uh, Kelly MacDonald plays, you know, a Scotswoman who has recently just returned. I believe she was living in probably like Edinburgh or something, just in like a big city, returning home to the island of Hag after uh, her own failed engagement and, you know, just kind of feeling like a failure and everything. And so uh, worlds kind of collide when uh, these movie star or this movie star rents out uh, the island's castle to serve as their wedding venue because. <laughs> Uh, Heg was the setting for her novelist fiance's book, the only book he's ever written. Uh, but he, it's not like he didn't, it, it becomes very quickly clear that he didn't really do his research because the castle is a horrible ruin and it's not at all what they intended. We don't have to get into that. Um, the title comes in, the decoy bride comes in when uh, the paparazzo that was stalking Laura in the church where she almost got married the first time shows up again done something to find her. I don't remember what it was. This actress's PAs get wind of the fact that this, you know, paparazzo is on this island. And so they recruit the only girl even remotely qualified to play this movie star in her own wedding, who is uh, Kelly McDonald's character, uh, Katie. Mm -hmm. And they recruit her to be the decoy bride so that the paparazzo can get some fake photos of the ceremony and then leave thinking that he's done it, and then they can do the thing for real, right? Uh, but then it's discovered that the movie star has discovered that the paparazzo is also, is on the island also, and she has gone into hiding because she doesn't want to be hounded by him anymore. So everybody's trying to find her, and at the same time, uh, you have uh, David Tennant and Kelly MacDonald trying to get across the island to find his bride so that they can get... Actually... <laughs> I forgot about this part. So during the wedding ceremony, they were accidentally actually married. And so they have to go find somebody to divorce them so that he can marry <laughs> his actual fiance. Gotcha. It's a whole thing. Um, it's 
there's it's very tepid i think in terms of like a rom-com there are definitely better ones out there but the first time i ever watched this on netflix i absolutely fell in love with it like i can't mm -hmm. really even explain to you why like it's it's just it's like it's just so heartfelt in its and david Tennant and kelly mcdonald i think have great comedic chemistry together um mm -hmm. i think they also have great romantic chemistry i think they go really well together like I think it really is Kelly and David that really sell the film for me. Uh, mm. Just their interactions, their chemistry. Um, the one thing I will say that does not sell the film for me is that at the very end, the paparazzo that was stalking the movie star uh, confesses that the reason that he's been stalking her all this time is that he's in love with her and she finds that endearing for some reason and they like get together. And I'm like, no, he was stalking you. What are you talking about? Weird. <laughs> but like that's at the very end. You can kind of cut it out. It's fine. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's really cute. Um, it also has one of my favorite songs that has ever been in films. Uh, the song is called "Chasing Time" by Alan Powell. It is impossible to find a copy of this song in the United <laughs> States unless you directly rip it off of YouTube because, like, he, apparently he doesn't have an American distributor, and I don't think he's made pop music for like at least ten years. So, like, there's no way to get his stuff out here. And I want them to get his stuff out here. Please, somebody, <laughs> UMG, buy the rights for the American oh, distribution. Man. I need to not have an illegally owned copy of this song, pretty please. Cool. And then uh, Cinderella's Story. Uh, I probably talked too long about that one. This doesn't matter. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. Uh, 2004, American teen romantic comedy film directed by Mark Roseman, written by Lee Dunlap. And starring Hilary Duff, Chad Michael Murray, Jennifer Coolidge, and Regina King. A powerhouse of stars, if ever I have heard them. <laughs> Truly. So, uh, it's there are, I think, now five versions of a Cinderella story. There are. Have so, all... I, mm -hmm. I thought you were talking about the Hilary Duff one. Yeah, you I are, was, right? yeah. Yes. I wasn't entirely sure, because there are so many... It's so funny. So, like, the f the gimmick that they were trying to do afterwards was that, like, oh, Hillary Duff is really into baseball. What else are the teens into? So they did another Cinderella story where Selena Gomez is a dancer. And then a few years later, they did another one where Lucy Hale of uh, Pretty Little Liars fame does a singing one. And now I think that they've done two more from what I've heard. There's one where it's a girl. It's another Disney Channel girl whose name I don't know because she was after my time. Uh -huh. uh, but like she plays like a fashion designer maybe like a shoe designer and it's something like the tagline is like if the shoe fits or something and it's really yeah. funny uh -huh. and then there's another one where <laughs> it's I do know these actors actually one of them is from Austin the last one the most recent one uh, it's a Christmas one and it's uh, one of the girls I think it's the girl from Austin and Alley plays like a Christmas elf and Greg Sulkin, who played Selena Gomez's werewolf boyfriend on Wizards of Waverly Place, wow. plays like her boss or something. And like it's like a little like song and dance. I've watched like one clip from it and it was so bad. Oh my goodness. It was terrible. Okay, can I break something to you? Yes, please. There's another one. There's six. <gasps> There's six. Oh my gosh, wait, what? Yeah. Cinderella Story Starstruck came out in 2021. And there's country people on the poster. Oh no! Yeah, small town farmer Finley Tremaine aspires to spread her wings and become a budding artist. When a Hollywood film crew arrives, she is determined to grab their attention and land a role in the production. So, see, it's the same thing, right? It's like, oh, it's country and maybe acting, also. Like, <laughs> yeah, like you have 
They're like, let's make the same exact story with the same exact characters minus some changes. And the big selling point is that they're into something. Yeah. And that's what, like, it's like, that's the selling point of the movie. Yeah, exactly. No, so um, a Cinderella story, the 2004 one, is the best one. Yes. Personally. <laughs> um, uh, at least in my opinion. Uh, and I think that that's true just objectively. Like, it's the least offensive in terms of cinematography and just writing in general and, like, also feminism, I think. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, a Cinderella story tells, obviously, a Cinderella story. Uh, this uh, Hilary Duff plays uh, Sam Montgomery, who... Uh, is being raised in the San Fernando Valley by her father. Uh, he, deciding that she needs a mom, marries her stepmother, played by the inimitable Jennifer Coolidge. Icon. <laughs> We're going to talk about her a little bit later, too. Um, I think in the next half of the bracket, so when we do my next one, like, four weeks from now. Um, she's beautiful, and there's a reason that she's a pop culture icon. Love Jennifer Coolidge, we stand. Um, but she plays... The stepmother who, uh, after Sam's father dies in uh, in the San Fernando earthquake in 19-whatever, 1994 Northridge earthquake, that's the one. And, you know, it's tales old as time, right? Uh, Sam is made to work horrible hours at the diner and at home and is not able uh, to pursue her own hopes and dreams because she's exhausted from running around after her terrible stepfamily who treat her really awfully. Uh, the only recourse she has is uh, getting into Princeton, which was her father's dream for her. And uh, on this forum for future Princeton hopefuls, uh, she meets this boy who only goes by Nomad, uh, who claims to go to her same school. She doesn't know who it is. It turns out, whoopsie daisies, it's the most popular boy in her school, the football player. Uh, Austin. I love the way that you said the football player. The football player. <laughs> because that's the stereotype that is also like makes it sound like he's the only football player. He's the only world. football he's the only one. That's why he's so good. He's uh, revealed <laughs> because he's the only one. <laughs> exactly. Um Yeah, and so you know, they go to their school's Halloween costume ball and they meet, but they're both but she's masked up, so she learns who he is, but he doesn't learn who she is. And instead of dropping her shoe, she drops her cell phone, and he has to use the cell phone to find her. Um, this film is so just, it's so full of charm. Like the little diner that they're, like that her father owned that she, you know, now has to work for is just full of just like these fun, charming characters. Uh, Regina King obviously is to stand out as Rhonda, who is the manager. Wonderful. Oh my gosh. Best performance. Probably one of the best performances in the movie. I think it's probably the best performance. She's just so kind and empathetic, but also like ready to go to bat for Sam at any given moment. <laughs> like there's one point where she actively threatens to like beat Jennifer Coolidge's character up. Like she's like, you know, a, a girl fighting in the schoolyard. It's so good. Um, <laughs> and I think, I don't know. You've seen this one. So do you have any thoughts? Uh, not really. I mean, it's just been so long that it kind of, there's just, it's very iconic, I think, more iconic than any other Cinderella story movie that I've seen. Oh, definitely. You know, like, sure. You'll see, you'll be just be like waltzing along on the internet and you'll see clips from this movie that just kind of define yeah. the feeling that none of the other movies, from what I've been able to tell, I have watched the same Lena Gomez one that was about the same time, like mm -hmm. 10, 13 years ago. Yeah. 
Um, I will say that if I were to rate the Cinderella story movies that I have seen, I would rate it number one and then number three, because I actually really like Lucy Hale's one for absolutely no reason. But <laughs> Nice. Okay. Well, yeah, I don't really have a whole lot to say, but... Yeah. That's you okay. Um, you know, both of these are, like, aesthetically bad films. But I'm having a real time hard time choosing which one should go forward because i know whatever it is it's just going to get obliterated because the next one is like the critically acclaimed movies that becca loves one so it doesn't really matter which one goes ahead um i'm, I'm gonna go ahead and do decoy bride okay to move on just because i don't think like hardly anybody has seen it and i want netflix to put it back on netflix again so <laughs> that's fair maybe if you make enough noise they'll bring it back I guess it doesn't matter. Do I own a copy of it now? I think I do. You can watch so. it on the Roku channel. I can watch it on the Roku channel. Oh, poor Roku. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, our next mashup, like I said, is the Becca's favorite crit critically acclaimed films. Uh, yeah, our next mashup is Mad Max Fury Road and uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um the first time I ever watched Mad Max Fury Road was for my film class. And we watched it specifically to uh, talk about the feminist lens of film critique. Um, Interesting. And it was so good. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I do love this film. Uh, Mad Max Fury Road 2015 Australian post-apocalyptic action film. Co-written, co-produced, and directed by George Miller. Um, yeah, this movie kind of has a powerhouse of people behind it. Uh, starring Tom Hardy, Charlize Theron, Nicholas Holt, uh, Zoe Kravitz, Courtney Eaton, uh, lots of good famous people in here. Um, it is so impossible to explain the plot of this movie and, like, the world of this movie succinctly. And I know that because I had no idea what this movie was about going into it. <laughs> so I'm gonna try. I can't guarantee. Um, so basically, the world has gone into societal collapse. And everybody in the Mad Max world lives in a desert now. And the necessity of living in this desert is that you have to build these great big cars to be able to cross it with, you know, within reasonable amounts of time uh, so that you don't die of thirst because water is so rare. Um, and so Tom Hardy in this world plays um, a man named Max, obviously, Max Rokitansky, um, who... Max has been through a lot. There were like three or four Mad Max films before this one came out. But at the beginning of the film, he is uh, kidnapped and taken to the Citadel, which is um, owned by this villain called Immortan Joe. And he doesn't really matter like at all in this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so but so Mad Max is kidnapped and he's being like the thing that they call it is he's being used as a blood bag for. Um, one of Immortan Joe's like soldiers, basically, like his mm. blood, his healthy blood is being used to shore up uh, Nicholas Holt's character. Gross. Um, yeah, it's disgusting, <laughs> but it's important later because um, uh, Furiosa, who is Charlene Theron's character, and like the reason that everybody loves this film, uh, is being she she's one of uh, Immortan Joe's lieutenants. She's going off to. Uh, you know, do big trades and things and all of this. So yeah, Furiosa is leaving with the wives. Um, Nicholas Holt's character is following them because he's in love with one of the wives, but because 
Mad Max, because Max is being used to keep him alive, basically, he straps Max to the front of his truck <laughs> and they drive off. <laughs> gotcha. Very funny. Um, uh, and then he and Furiosa are introduced and they kind of become unlikely allies. Uh, and then Furiosa explains that she's trying to find the green place, which is the place that she was born. It is this very, very revolutionary uh, idea in terms of cinema, at least especially male-directed cinema, like it is by George Miller. Um, mm -hmm. where it's an entirely female, uh, like, utopia, basically, um, where they're all, like, they all work together, and, like, Furiosa has such fond memories of it that she wanted to bring the wives there, and they wanted to, like, rediscover it, right? Um, and so the entire film, like, Mad Max is the, like, the named protagonist of the film, but it is Furiosa's story. It is her going off to try to find the green place it is her having to grapple with the consequences of her home not being there anymore having to decide what that means for her and what she's going to do next um which is uh they go back and they storm a morton joe's uh citadel and they turn it into an actual utopia again and there's this thing one of the big talking points whenever you hear about this film is the way that george miller is able to direct your eye through action scenes he follows like he has this method it's uh, the best way i can describe it is like uh, Lindsay ellis has a really good video about it like the way that the camera tracks during uh furiosa and max's meeting scene where they have like this fight over some water <clears throat> and like it just it draws your eye and it follows you and it's such a good action film i get so exhausted watching like mission impossible films and like i don't like things like that you know i get so exhausted watching action films good action films will not do that to you and i think mad max fury road falls in that category it's Nice. Yeah, there's a lot. And it's just, yeah, it's a good film. And it's a beautiful action film. And it's a great little piece of feminist film theory. And I like it. That's all I have to say about that. Awesome. <laughs> have you seen this at all or no? Have you seen I anything about this I have seen uh, mostly what you've sent me and what you've told me about it. So hmm. Nice. All right. Yeah. Between Fury Road and Everything Everywhere All at Once, I'm pretty much restricted to your opinions on everything. So. Okay, um, yeah, and then everything everywhere all at once. Um it's it's we talked about this like a little bit last week because I did my whole little rant about women. Um not yeah. last week ago, it doesn't matter. Uh, so this is written by uh, written and directed by Daniels, uh, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Schreiner. Follows uh, it's a twenty twenty-two American absurd absurdist comedy drama film. Uh, starring Michelle Yeoh, Stephanie Su, Keiki Kwan, who everybody knew initially as Short Round. He retired from acting for a long time before coming back again in this movie. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis, Jenny Slate, Harry Shum Jr., James Hong, etc. I actually commented, you, this is a fun fact that nobody is going to care about except for me. Uh, in the episode of Brandon Sanderson and Dan Wells' podcast on the Brandon Sanderson YouTube channel, uh, the podcast is called Intentionally Blank. They did an episode talking about everything everywhere all at once. And I left a comment on that video that uh, both Brandon and Dan responded to. And they said that they liked my take. So I'm going to share it again here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but, so the concept of the film is that uh, Michelle Yeoh's character, Evelyn, was, is, was in a parallel universe, an absolute genius. And she discovered a way to connect with other alternate versions of herself, giving her power to uh, 
kind of borrow from those other versions of herself. So mm -hmm. like if you can find the proper pathway, you can find a version of yourself that knows Kung Fu to protect yourself, or you can find the version of yourself that knows how to cook really well or you know, things like that. Um, yeah. And you can use those skills in perpetuity basically. Um, but the Evelyn in the original universe that discovered this uh, did so at the expense of uh, experimenting on her daughter, who, um, uh, in like the the vanilla version of Evelyn that we have, like her daughter is kind of displaying similar tendencies. Uh, Michelle Yeoh's character, or I should say, Evelyn, is very clearly uh, dissatisfied with her life. She and her husband own a laundromat that's about to go under. Um, they're trying to figure out their taxes, um, which is actually I didn't know this before going into the film, but it is. Um, uh, all set within the the main events of the film were all set within uh, the IRS building, which is one of my favorite gimmicks in film. I love when a film is like set in one place. Uh -huh. Like obviously, because this is an absurdist film, it does branch off into other things. But a majority of the action takes place in the office building, which I think is so fun. We can talk about that when we get to Rear Window. Um, yeah, and so uh, because Evelyn is kind of dissatisfied with her life in this way, uh, it's kind of alienated her daughter Joy. And her husband, Waymond, who uh, mm -hmm. is drawing up divorce papers because he thinks that Evelyn isn't happy and hopes that divorcing her will give her a better chance to be happy in this life. Uh, but then as they're in the RRS <laughs> sitting across from Jamie Lee Curtis, Waymond starts like changing all of a sudden. And like all of a sudden he's like not his timid usual self anymore. And it's this version of Waymond from the, you know, the kind of the alpha universe where Evelyn managed to figure all this stuff out. And he warns Evelyn that things are about to go wrong, that something is coming after her. What is the thing called? Uh, Jobu Tupaki is coming after her. Evelyn does not know what Jobu Tupaki is. It, she only knows that it wants to hurt her and that she needs to follow Wayman's instructions if she wants to get out alive, basically. Okay. <clears throat> And so uh, he gives her this device that allows her to access alternate versions of herself. They go so hard in the paint with these other alternate versions of herself. There's a really interesting one uh, that we can talk about later where she uh, chose not to marry Waymond and instead became like this great uh, Kung Fu superstar in China uh, instead of emigrating to the United States and starting their laundromat. There's one mm -hmm. where there's one kind of further off where everybody has hot dogs for fingers and she's in love with the IRS lady. And <laughs> <laughs> that one, I love that one. There's one where uh, Ratatouille is uh, she, like, she keeps butchering the name of the film Ratatouille. I uh, uh -huh. call it Raccoonie instead, but there's a film where that's real. And like people can only cook with raccoons sitting on their heads and like <laughs> directing them or like, there's like one specific guy that can't cook without this raccoon sitting on his chef's hat. But it turns out that, um, like, you know, through all of this absurdity that you're watching, it's so funny. And the film really challenges you in the first two halves to really kind of care about this absurdity. There's so much insanity around it. But then it is revealed that Jobu Tupaki, the big evil that they are fighting, is the original version of Evelyn's daughter from that Alpha universe. The one that was experimented on and tortured uh, so that Evelyn could complete her work. And it is very clear that... Uh, her real name is Joy. Um, it is very clear that Joy has felt a great deal of pain and remorse and that that has driven her to madness. And so what she has done is, um, like, if nothing matters, then she's going to make it, then, like, just whatever, right? So what she did was, uh, in embracing her nihilism, she put everything and literally everything on a bagel. Uh, 
So it's literally an everything bagel and it became a black hole where you can be sucked in and just absorbed by your, uh, your nihilism and your caring that, you know, nothing matters basically. Uh, everything in the world is on this bagel and none of it mattered. So we're not going to care about it. Um, and that way we're going to protect ourselves emotionally. And Evelyn is very tempted by this. Like it's very clear that her coping with the pain of everything she believes she could have been. Uh, but now that she has gained access to the versions of the things that she could be and that she is in other universes, she discovers that no matter how, no, like no matter how silly something is or no matter how asinine you may find it, there is always going to be somebody to care about it. Like mm -hmm. the guy with raccoon, he really, really loves the raccoon and he wants to like save it from the pound when he's found out. And Evelyn helps him do that. <laughs> and like she discovers like true love with the IRS lady in the hot dog universe. <laughs> and, uh, there's one really touching scene. The best scene, I think the one that really drives it home is in that uh, universe where uh, she never married Wayman and became a Kung Fu star. Mm -hmm. um, she has a premiere and Wayman actually turns up at this premiere. He also stayed in China and he's like some kind of like successful businessman or something. They share a cigarette in an alley. And and like that he kind of talks about how miserable they both are because they never got married. And mm -hmm. he says the most beautiful romantic line I've ever heard in the movie. And it was, I really would have liked just doing laundry and taxes with you. Which is exactly what he's been doing in the in, mm -hmm. in the original version of the universe. And he was so happy with her. And Wayman is the perfect example. Again, I have to recommend the pop culture detective video. Everybody, everyone needs Wayman Wang. It's Wayman is the solution to this because he cares about everything. And he does it with genuine joy and care. And this is what Evelyn learns. She learns how to adapt Wayman's kind of philosophy of care and love and that's how she is able to defeat the evil version of her daughter and bring her back to sanity and it's and it all of it is gorgeously done and it's so beautiful it was the best film i saw in 2022 uh it's the best film i think i've seen ever <laughs> it's so good uh anyway. nice. yeah fantastic it's, yeah it's beautiful so i assume everything ever all at once will be moving up yes and i encourage everybody to watch it because it's very Fantastic. it's very good yes uh hi everybody uh editing back here josh and i got over three hours of footage recording this episode so we have kind of made the executive decision to shorten the length of episodes uh and the initial one we did 16 films whittled them down to eight uh, so from the, starting with this episode and continuing, we are only going to be reviewing eight episodes, whittling down to four. Uh, this is going to extend kind of the length run of this mini series that we're doing to kind of kickstart the Screenwalkers channel. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. We hope you enjoy the, uh, conversations that we've been having. We really like them. We're having a lot of fun so far. Uh, but we are going to be shortening those episodes up just so that we're not giving you like two and a half hour episodes we do apologize for how long these are going to be um but yeah i hope you continue listening let me go ahead and do our outro really quick here uh thank you so much for listening uh, you can see our screen notes at screenwalkerspod.com uh and you can find any information about what's going on with the podcast there as well uh, and we look forward to hearing from you thank you so much 